What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I love doing this podcast, and I'm grateful to have the support of two of the most popular and respected companies in the Bitcoin space. If you already know all about how River and CoinKite can help you buy and secure your Bitcoin, skip ahead 75 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite makes some of the most badass Bitcoin hardware there is. Their flagship product is the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, a feature-rich tool for taking self-custody of your Bitcoin, which has been a favorite of hardcore Bitcoiners for many years. CoinKite is also the maker of the wildly popular Block Clock series, which are standalone or wall-mounted devices which track and display things like the current Bitcoin block height, the SATs per fiat exchange rate, the Bitcoin price, and many other data points of interest to a Bitcoin enthusiast. It might not sound that exciting, but it's almost bizarrely satisfying to be able to glance over at it and watch as new blocks are added to the chain. The recently released Block Clock Micro, a smaller and more affordable option, is now available at their store. Check it out, along with a ton of other stuff for securely using and having some fun with your Bitcoin at CoinKite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning service enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their excellent customer service, stellar team, and for their principled and dedicated approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Ivy? Avi? Am I getting that right? Ivy. You can call me Ivy. It's a fake name anyway, so uh, it doesn't matter. Ivy? <laughs> Ivy, yeah. Okay, like like uh, Poison Ivy. That's how you yeah, pronounce it. Right. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, how you doing? It's been... Uh, when did we see each other last? May of last year? Yeah, that's right. I uh, Oslo Freedom Forum about, um, yeah, almost a year ago. Yeah, I think was the last uh, time I saw you, was it the night we all went out? Or did we get together again after that? I, uh, if I, I think remember, that might have been the last one. So we went out every night, so uh, <laughs> we really picked nights apart from each other. But uh, right. yeah, I guess it was the last night. Well, yeah, I mean, my last, my last recollection is we were sitting on the couch in, what was that place called? The London Club or the Paris Club or something like that? That's right. Yeah. London Club. Uh, yeah. And I was wasted. I drank way more than I normally do. And uh, I can't remember what we were talking about, but there was a few of us there. And I remember you and I were into some deep discussion on the couch. Uh, There's a gay bar, right? Or like a yeah, it is. yeah, that's right. Yeah, good times. That's <laughs> basically all I, I remember. I, I thought that was the wasted one, and that uh, you were sitting sitting there and like, uh, oh, what is this guy uh, talking about? He's not. <laughs> but uh, then you told me the next day you thought the same. So that's uh, it seemed like it's fine. that's always good. Yeah, that always makes everyone feel better. Um, you know, and this is I don't I don't know if you know this. You you probably do. And this is kind of a I hate to uh, drop something so serious and somber, but. I think a few nights later or the next weekend, that bar was actually like shot up by a terrorist or something, right? Yeah. I can't remember if it was before or after, but uh, it, it, it was it was it was just after. Okay, yeah. Hmm. Um, like really soon after, a couple of days maximum the next weekend, which is just, you know, bonkers, insane. Uh yeah. but yeah, horrible. Anyways, uh on to uh brighter news, but you uh, you were one of the first to sign up on my Calendly link. I've started putting out a link to say, you know, if you have something interesting to talk about, you can uh, book yourself into the pod and we can record something. And 
and you did, which is great because, you know, I've been watching what you've been doing and I'm super interested. Like I think many people are in, uh, going back to the land so-called as it were, and, you know, raising cattle and, you know, farming or, or, uh, you know, doing something in that realm of basically being more independent in terms of food, in terms of land, in terms of energy and, and this stuff. And you've been doing it in Norway and, you know, clearing the land and selling the wood for sats. And, and I think you got your first crop of cattle like six months ago or something like that. And so I'm just, I'm interested in hearing all about your experience thus far, but um, if you had anything else that you wanted to get kicked off with, then the floor is yours. Well, thanks. Uh, I think yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, the I think the podcasts uh, that I've enjoyed the most uh, in general and uh, from you specifically is uh, the ones with the exact, uh, uh, well, the guys doing uh, something similar to what I'm doing myself. And yeah. uh, <clears throat> I mean, two years ago, I was living in the city, like uh, in Oslo, the biggest city in Norway, in an apartment and um, uh, still uh, studying in university and living a totally different life from what I'm what I'm living now and uh, listening to these podcasts just uh, yeah helped like gain the perspective and uh, see the possibilities that uh, you don't really know that is out there uh, but I grew up on a farm so I'm uh, I got uh, some of it in uh, early on uh, but uh, yeah, I was sort of heading the other direction towards, uh, well, I had a job and I was uh, studying in university in the city and uh, sort of slowly going to that direction, like starting to thinking about uh, buying an apartment and all that kind of stuff. And then COVID came and I uh, <clears throat> had to sit in my apartment basically uh, all the time. I mean, Norway wasn't locked up, but uh, it wasn't really that much to do yeah. anymore outside unless you went uh, hiking uh, which i did but you can't really do that uh, uh, all day every day uh, so that was sort of an eye-opener to me on uh, how much your uh, freedoms can be infringed on and how how limited you can become when you live in a city like that and you live like sort of in a box where it's so much easier to make rules for you for what you can do and what you can't um that really started i think that started kicking off some some thoughts in my head and um made me realize that the, that was not the right direction to go for me were you already into bitcoin at that time yeah i think uh i, I bought bitcoin first in 2017 and then uh, i'd say wow. that the, how old were you then must have been like 17 18 something like that yeah around there yeah 18 i think that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I wish uh, I knew about uh, Bitcoin when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> then you would have been uh, like 2006. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would have been before Bitcoin existed. Um, yeah, cool. So, I mean, it's, it sounds like the, the COVID situation and the lockdowns kind of, I mean, I think this happened for a lot of people. Not only was it that they're, they're, your life could so easily be turned off basically you know you could be forced into your confined little space and when when the 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 world of big cities is shut down you you realize how little is actually available to you or how little your life actually consists of on its own you know it needs the the interactivity of a big city and i think a lot of people have have prioritized or made a choice like you to to want more independence, want not to be able to so easily be shut down. And even if you are, you know, heaven forbid, forced to stay on your own property at some point in the future, 
in the scenario that you seem to be building, at least your own property is something that, you know, you have a lot of work to do in. It's, it's a big open environment. You can, you can feel more free and independent. You're not relying on so many other people for all the things that you need. And I think, you know, obviously that is just far more appealing to a lot of people that are freedom and sovereignty minded, you know? And so I think that's why we see this trend of people thinking about doing that kind of stuff and, or doing it. And, and as you mentioned, like, some of my favorite pods that I've done have been those guys too, whether it's like untapped or the good doctor or uh rev hoddle, like these guys are just out there. And it's so interesting to hear how they're approaching uh, getting into like permaculture or ranching or whatever it might be. And, and it, I mean, it's such an interesting universe. I think you said that you were, your family was in a farming, but you were kind of divergent from that, or you were diverging from that and you were going to go, you know, uh, do something else. And I think a lot of people over the last several decades have probably felt that like farming was somewhat beneath them or somewhat boring, or no, I want to go do something more important or more exciting or more meaningful or whatever. And there seems to be a, like a fairly dramatic shift happening now where people are beginning to reappreciate just how one interesting, like that world can be, how, like how many, uh, elements and dynamics are at play there and how they're, you know, managing that interplay and kind of aligning with nature to have to coax it into the direction that you want to, to coax it and to get what you want out of it, how interesting all that can be, you know, and how rewarding it can be and how enjoyable working outside and working with your hands is like, there's so many, again, there's a reappreciation for just how uh, awesome or meaningful a lot of that can be. And, um, in addition to the 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 independent components of it, you know that we already ref, you know referred to, but what's your what's your experience been with it? Like how how's it been? As you said, you had a family background, so it's not necessarily super new to you. But what's it been like? You know, doing it on your own and getting things going. I think you have a very good point uh, in saying that um, most people, me included, uh, saw farming as something sort of beneath them, or at least it's not at least something not uh, exciting and new and and cool and innovative and um, yeah something that gives you uh, tremendous joy. Um, but that's just because we've totally ruined farming, um, right? And in in so many ways. Uh, with similarities uh, to how we ruined the money. Uh, and I think that's very interesting that we're seeing sort of this uh, farming and uh, and Bitcoin movements uh, growing together. And I think it's, you can say that, okay, it's just like a few people, but I think it's now at a, at a point where it's so substantial that you can't sort of overlook it. And I think it's not, uh, not, not a coincidence at all. And I think that uh, farmers uh, are so used to being um, uh, to being like tricked and uh, manipulated and taken advantage of uh, in the same way with regards to farming and sort of uh, taking away the the custody and um, ownership to their own land and to their job and taking away the joy of it that uh, they immediately understand or at least very easily understand. Uh, that the same thing applies to money and that the, the ownership of money has been taken away from us. And um, both with going into like regenerative agriculture or whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that I, like, I identify most with uh, in farming uh, and Bitcoin is sort of two similar ways of taking ownership of that part yourself. And I think um, 
that also ties in with, uh, if you look at the average age uh, of farmers uh, here in Norway, it's about uh, 60 years old. And in the States, I think it's about 70 years old. Wow. So I've heard. And I think that's that's no coincidence. Uh, it has to do with um, uh, both people not seeing it as a, a, a cool thing to do, like beneath themselves. But it also has a lot to do with the monetary system itself, uh, because in able to um, run a, uh, economically a sustainable farm today, uh, you perhaps have, have, have to buy up like five or 10 farms uh, of a previously uh, normal size and run all those five or 10 farms and have a job on the side or your wife have to, has to uh, work on the side or whatever. Uh, so you have, to, uh, you have to work so incredibly much to just barely make it go by. Why is that? Is it because the inputs have become so expensive or because they can't sell their uh, crops for a high enough price? Why is that the case? I'd say the last one, because at least in Norway, I don't know, I don't know the American agricultural system well enough, but I think there's uh, quite a lot of similarities. Uh, in Norway, for a lot of the products, the, the farmers don't set the price themselves. Like the you don't have any influence on the price at all so it's just like decided centrally okay this is the price this year and then they have this thing they call like negotiations which is just like a farce between an organization that's uh, backed by the uh, companies that uh, produce the inputs for the agriculture um, system which is uh, <laughs> an uh, obvious bias in my opinion uh, and the uh, authorities paying out the subsidies, which um, uh, constitute a huge part of the farmer's income. And so these are supposed to uh, come to an agreement on uh, how much the subsidy is going to grow. And then uh, the prices for fertilizer and uh, pesticides and diesel and all these kind of things double in price or even like quadruple or uh, something in price, which we've seen over the last years. And then they increase the subsidies by like 10% because that's what they came to an agreement of. So it's like a farce of a negotiation that doesn't make any sense. And this has happened um, for so many years uh, in a slow, gradual way. Uh, and I don't know if this is a coincidence or uh, if it's all tied together, but in the same way with the, as it, with the monetary system, this is all just kicked off into gear uh, after, uh, I, would, I would say like post-COVID or post 2020 uh, and it's just like looking more and more um yeah worse and worse for you, every you, year you mean the kind of the cracks or faults within the agricultural industry have been revealed or emerged as a result of the chaos around covid yeah i think uh, to be specific the gap between the income and the expenses have grown so much that it's obvious that it's not sustainable and a lot of people are also just giving up because of that and uh, like just saying like uh, there's nothing i'd rather do than farm but uh, this is just not possible anymore i've uh, i've gone as far as i can go uh, both for yeah my own health and for the um, for the relations in the family and uh, for uh, the financial risk and all that kind of stuff um, and I think that's uh, that's the reason for the high average age to do, to get back to that of farmers uh, around the world uh, is uh, you have to take up bigger and bigger loans uh, to be able to buy the equipment that's efficient enough to run all these five or ten farms uh, that previously uh, let's take my farm as an example 
this farm is about uh, half the size of an average uh, Norwegian farm today. Uh, and um, yeah, people would laugh or people do laugh when I say that I will live off farming this farm uh, on myself and, uh, and um, paying for a family's expenses with this farm. Uh, but uh, if you look uh, back to the like, uh, end of um, the 1800s and uh, early 1900s, it worked 20 people on this farm uh, that didn't get any input from other places. And then all these 20 people lived and worked on the farm. Uh, that's this size. And now people are laughing about um, making... Um, one, one person making a, a living. One salary. <laughs> that's so crazy. You know, it... <clears throat> As you said, it, it seems like it's just another example of the perverse incentives that the fiat system perpetuates, you know, and, and so like these, these farmers in to cope with the rising price. I mean, first of all, the fact that prices are set by like a central body, just as interest rates are set by, you know, central bankers, let's say, it's just so completely insane, because of course, you're going to get well, one, a misallocation of capital and capital destruction, but also you're just going to mean that the market can't equilibrate and meet the needs of of all the demand signals that are coming at them. You know, it's so crazy. I'm, I'm from Canada and the um, I'm sure there's lots of fuckery there that I'm not aware of, but one, one that I am aware of and that a lot of people are increasingly aware of is the way like the the milk cartel works there or the dairy cartel. I can't remember the official name of it, like the dairy farmers group, whatever. And it's just, you know, it's a big union or a collect the, all the producers in conjunction with the government to basically ring fence the industry. So the, there can't be other dairy products coming from the U S or other producers. There's a certain quota that you can't go over anything that goes over, can't sell it to a farmer's market, can't give it away to charity, must be destroyed. And there was something going around on Twitter a few days ago that was, um, you know, a farmer basically just flushing down the drain, like 30,000 liters of milk or something. Um, and it's it's just it's so asinine, right? Because it doesn't have to be this way. You know, if, if the land and if you're capable of producing more of a surplus, obviously you should be able to sell that both for your own benefit and for the benefit of the market in terms of lower prices for goods that people need. Um, but again, it's, it just seems like another example of, of these perverse incentives and the, the power dynamics that are created by them that are allow these circumstances to prevail. Um, and it's a, it's a shame because as you say, like so many people end up not being able to cope with it, it becomes so stressful, it becomes so difficult to, to make a living and, and people give up and that's obviously bad and emotionally you know, draining and challenging for them. And it's bad for people that rely on the things that they produce. Um, and then for the ones that remain, as you say, they need to take out these big loans and then they're, then they're in the debt system, right? So then, you know, they got to keep making those payments. They have to drive their animals or the land as hard as they possibly can, basically strip mine the land, right? Whether it's monocrop agriculture or shoving, you know, a billion cattle into a, a very small area, feeding them garbage, right? Because they're just trying to drive yield as much as they can. And in doing so, they destroy the health of the animals, they destroy the health of the land, they're uh, degrading the soil, rather than, you know, building the, the health and wealth of the soil. Um, and so it's, as you said, it's entirely unsustainable from a financial perspective, from an ecosystem perspective, from an emotional perspective. Um, you know, another one, just another, not another, uh, put it on the board as another kind of fiat insanity. And it's, I've heard some of the other guys I've spoken to have uh, talked about this notion and 
kind of making an analogy between Bitcoin and and farming, of which there are many, but one of them is this this idea of soil wealth, like the soil being a store of value. And if you approach it correctly, if you if you find the right synthesis or harmony with the land and what you're trying to get from it, you can actually it can actually be generative. And this is the idea of regenerative agriculture, of course. Like you can actually build up the health of the soil over time so that it's actually capable of delivering more to you, more food for the animals, more vegetables, more fruits, whatever it might be. And that's, you know, and so you're that's be, that's building up a store of value over time if you treat it properly, if the right incentives are in place, if you have the freedom to interact with it as you see fit. But if you don't, then you're forced to be a participant in its destruction. And may, may, that's a hell of a metaphor for pretty much everything in fiat, right? If you don't have the freedom to interact with whatever system the way you see fit, then basically you're forced to participate uh, in its destruction via responding to those perverse incentives. Exactly. Um, I was going to say something now, but then uh, I forgot about it. <laughs> well, well. so tell me tell me how you think about this idea of uh, soil wealth or soil being a, a store of value. Because I think, again, part of this uh, back to the land mentality, um, I think is just a reappreciation for how interesting all this can be. But you know, not only how important, not only how relevant, not only how uh, how it can convey a greater sense of independence and sovereignty and freedom, but also just how fascinating and interesting it can be. And I think there's a genuine desire. You know, not, there's a lot of people in the world today that virtue signal green or environment, whatever, right? And then you you scratch the surface, and it's all about carbon taxes and doing what I say and use the fucking uh, paper straws and whatever. It's not actually about really, you know learning about understanding the ecosystem that you're in and trying to align your objectives with how it functions and so that you can find a harmony there. That's not what most people you know, are talking about when they talk about environmental stuff, but that's super interesting. There, there's so many, so many rabbit holes here, literally and figuratively, you know, to go down and, and learn about. And I think people are being intellectually stimulated by that prospect. So you know, what's it been like for you learning about that process. And, you know, if you want to touch on the idea of, of soil wealth or soil as a store of value, then I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too. Yeah. Uh, I would just like to say that the, <clears throat> you're, you're mentioning like uh, uh, the carbon, uh, it's like calculating carbon, like uh, carbon is the worst world in the world, uh, <laughs> right. and along with perhaps uh, freedom. And I think uh, <laughs> those, <laughs> the fact that those two words are like dirty words in our society says uh, basically everything all you need to know yeah exactly the world we live in uh, and i remember what, what i was going to say and it was about um uh about the the fact the, the spilling the milk that you mentioned earlier i've seen mm -hmm. uh, i think several of those uh, videos on um on, on twitter lately and i i think it's also uh pretty high up on the agenda uh in our country as well uh and um it's not something new at all this has been happening for years, uh, not only with milk, but with every product. And it's it's due to the fact that uh, did you disappear? No, there. No, no. Uh, it's due to the fact that the prices are uh, are set centrally, uh, right. so they don't follow uh, demand at all. Uh, and we've gone down this uh, route before uh, in the 1930s, uh, which created um, a lot of the um, uh, starvation and stuff that we saw. 
uh, during the Great Depression because the government tried to fix, um, yeah, fix the, the, the crash of 29 with uh, pouring in all this money into production in various places, uh, among others, uh, farming. And then they produced so much of these uh, cheap yields uh, that was the, or cheap crops uh, that was just replacing something else, uh, disturbing the whole food system. And uh, these crops were, were so bad, much of it was thrown away. And then that caused, um, caused famine. And I think we're seeing much of the same today that uh, we're just pouring so much money uh, into basically all systems that, uh, as you say, uh, capital misallocation turns into um, uh, turns into lower production uh, over time, and then uh, you will have yeah have the consequences of it later. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's not something we can just say that okay we're, we're so efficient now that that can never happen again because it's not about efficiency; it's about uh, information, and uh, we're not seeing accurate information in the uh, in the monetary realm or the farming realm today. Totally. And, you know, how many examples of price fixing or price controls leading to disastrous outcomes does anybody need to come up with a different uh, approach or just let things find their own equilibrium? You know, so much of, of fiat I, can be characterized as like that game whack-a-mole, right? You just, the fiat capital allocators focus in on a perceived problem and then they throw, you know, they throw all the resources that they have at their fingertips are available to them at it to try to quote unquote, fix it. And then by doing that, you just create another problem elsewhere and you just keep shifting the problem and you keep destroying capital as you're doing that. And of course, as you say, it leads to really bad outcomes, starvation or, you know, disaster or war or what have you, when all you need to do is allow things to find their own equilibrium, allow, allow people to make free choices and allow that harmony to kind of self-generate and all the better if you know as people attempt to do that they will naturally try and try to find a harmony or synthesis with whatever environment they're engaging in because there's a recognition that that's how you get the most out of it in a sustainable manner right but i mean we're, we're far away from people in power having the wisdom uh to permit that approach in the world today yeah, and I think we're also far away from most people uh, realizing that fact themselves. I think the logical arguments are there to understand that uh, central central control is not the answer uh, to anything, and that it's way worse than any of the alternatives. Um, so I think it has to do with uh, something um, psychological that the people really don't trust themselves enough to take that responsibility of being sort of that uh, node out in the world that mm. keeps things honest and provides value. So they they sort of hide behind um, making this facade of like, okay, but we need this because if uh, everything is let loose, then it's just uh, the law of the biggest, uh, like the man with the biggest gun gets to decide everything. Although we know that's <laughs> not the case. Um, and I think it's permeating society to such a degree that um, it's just changed the whole way we behave, uh, which I think is really sad because if you just look at um, like the way we do pensions in society today, like it's seen as the most obvious thing that you should pay taxes 
uh, that the government should save up uh, a pension fund for you and that you should get that paid back when you're old. Although the whole idea of a pension fund like that, of a retirement plan like that is just flawed. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it requires uh, a constant growing population, which we don't have in the Western world right now, and is about to experience very harshly that uh, this is not going to work. And like when the pyramid uh, turns upside down, uh, it's uh, not a very uh, vigorous uh, structure anymore. Uh, and it's, it's, it's like, it's so unthinkable for most people to go back to a world where you're actually required to provide value uh, in your life, enable to ensure yourself a comfortable uh, ending of your life or sort of like a comfortable uh, last part of your life where you're not able to produce value anymore. And I think this uh, doesn't only go into like the society scale, it, it's like on a family scale as well, because that mm. means you have to act in a way that um, that, that makes make sure that your, your children actually want to care for you when you're old and that yeah. your uh, grandchildren want to, uh, want to care for them and that it keeps going. Otherwise, there's really no, no reason to it. Uh, so or, I think or it's, at, a, uh, at a minimum, it places greater importance on the strength of family relationships, right? Whether or not that you end up taking care of your parents. But I mean, this is kind of the argument against, you know, the big nanny state government. It said the more services or at least the more promises the government makes you know in many cases they're replacing those the 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 kind of promises or the support structure that previously was held by the family and i think again we're we're starting to to realize now in what is hopefully the height of big government era i fucking hope so at least uh, (laughs) that the degradation of the family the the weakening of those bonds the the less importance placed on them is deleterious to the development of, you know, a healthy, well-adjusted individual. It's deleterious to the, you know, communities. It's deleterious to markets, to everything. Like outsourcing all those important that have, for all of our history, been uh, conducive to creating strong family bonds and and support systems, and then built and then. Uh, building out from there into your, you know, your street, your community, your, your town, your city, whatever it may be, and flipping that on its head and putting all that um, expectation on the government and then hoping that it all trickles down like that. I mean, I just think it's, it's at least a big part of the uh, cause of so many problems that we're seeing in society. And I think, well, at least some people are starting to wake up to that and, and hopefully that it's the, uh, the trickle of people that will will lead to a, an eventual flood but yeah sorry to interrupt that's a, a big um that's a, a big part of what i'm doing at the farm too is uh, actually just trying to pick up the pieces of uh, the previous civilization uh, both by like reading up on what they were doing but also just talking to the old people in my town picking up how things were done before uh, how areas looked before uh, and they will like point at a field and say oh yeah that field has been uh, has been monocropped with uh, grain for uh, forever and uh, uh, before it was just a field but now it's like uh, 10 uh, stone islands uh, on that field that turn up or they didn't turn up but the soil disappeared uh, mm. through uh, tilling the soil every year and uh, having no roots in the soil uh, during fall when it's raining. Uh, so 
and uh, then they're pointed to the field uh, right by it and they're saying like, but that field is just the same and then you can see that it's in the landscape it's it's higher in the landscape than the grain field and then you can see uh, other fields that are or, or other like forest parts that they say oh yeah that was a field before but that that was just too small to to farm on, on the scale that they're farming now so they just planted it with spruce trees in the 60s uh, and now it's just forest uh, and overgrown so it's we can sort of uh, get all these ideas of how society was before and also all the different uh, crafts that we have forgotten about how to preserve food, uh, how to uh, build buildings uh, in a good way, like the buildings we build uh, today. A lot of them are, are trash compared to what they did uh, a long time ago. Like I was I was building building a room for the calves because uh, I just got my first calves uh, this about yeah, two weeks ago, the first one. Um, and I was building a room for them in the basement. And uh, this concrete uh, in my barn is from 1940. Uh, and you'd think that, okay, concrete from 1940 is uh, <laughs> probably really bad. Uh, but it was so incredibly hard that I was not able to drill through it with like a really big like uh, power tool <laughs> and a new drill. Uh, I was not able to drill through it, so I had to buy like all these tiny drills and increase the size, uh, uh, like over and over again, and able to just make holes in the in the concrete. And we're making concrete today, but it's not like half the strength of the concrete that they made in the 1940s. And still, we're like uh, so arrogant about the things we do and the things, uh, the way things were done before, and think we're so much better. But I think there's a lot of things to pick up from previous years and uh, actually I think it's important to, to take care of that too uh, that it doesn't disappear because I think a lot of it is about to actually disappear uh, at a scale that uh, it's hard to bring back yeah I totally agree and you know we, we've talked about obviously the impact of the fiat system on farming but I think and the disclaimer here is obviously there are certain areas in which there's been remarkable technological advancements and the conveniences of modern life are great. And, you know, this is not a, uh, I don't think we're either of us are looking to be like Amish here, but uh, I think there is a, a strong case to be made that the, the fiat system, the perverse incentives that it creates, the institutions that it necessitates, the power structures, et cetera, put that type of pressure, not just on farmers, but on producers of a lot of different things. You know, you, it's just, it's forcing everyone to cut corners and maximize yield and just, um, yeah, you know, to, to, to end up producing lower quality product or do it more expediently, got to get it out the door faster because, you know, the debt payment or the, or whatever is, is due. And so there's less care, there's less time available to, to do good work. Um, and, you know, I, I think that characterizes a lot of industries. And so, you know, what's super interesting about this hyper-Bitcoinized world that we often daydream about and, and hopefully are contributing to bringing about is that people will have a lot more time available if you can stack up your wealth and it doesn't go anywhere and it's not, you know, it's not sur surreptitiously stolen from you. You're able to slowly but steadily accrue wealth and and it'll be there for you in the future. You know, I think that will uh, a sense of additional time and patience will dawn on people. And so now you won't be so pressured to 
sell the thing, produce the thing, get it out the door, maximize the yield of the land, but you'll, you'll actually be able to focus on quality, whatever your domain might be, whether it's art or architecture or farming or whatever. And that's great because like quality, quality is inspiring, right? Quality is like the precursor to beauty or like quality and beauty are very closely related. And I, and there's something like extremely meaningful about that, maybe of the utmost meaning that people are, are able to not just deploy their energy and their resources and their work in service of just uh, meaningless production or just, just surviving, but actually able to deploy it in service of something more, more meaningful, more valuable. And, and the, the manifestation of that seems to be beauty. You know, I think this is why in, in this space, we, we often like look or harken back or share around images of other periods of time that perhaps there was a monetary unit that allowed for that sort of mindset to predominate. And then, you know, we, we tend to elevate or, or, or point to the creations of that time. And there's lots of variables here and, and you know, we're probably not giving them all due credit. So we're being a little bit, you know, idealistic or a little bit unfair in that in in that way but i think there's merit to the argument and pointing to these things that people made and what society looked like when everyone had more time where there was far less anxiety about the future when there was a when there was hope for the future when there was far more meaning in society and in, in culture and people celebrated and elevated that meaning and it was built into the culture and built into the buildings and built into families and landscapes and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it's, uh, if what we're talking about here, if, if it is indeed the case that the monetary medium of the time is, is extremely influential in that, not just for how people store value for the future, but how that dictates what kind of institutions prevail in society and how those either, uh, allow, you know, permit or prohibit the emergence of those sorts of things. If we're saying that Bitcoin is more conducive to that than anything else that has come before it, then it's incredibly exciting to think about what people are going to, uh, how, what people are going to commit themselves to and build in terms of how beautiful and meaningful they will be. Yeah, and I think you're totally right that uh, that uh, in in this kind of other world, and I agree with you that it's it's sort of idealistic, and uh, we're sort of putting putting things apart to make it clear. But uh, I think in this other world where you're on a on, on a, like a a fair monetary standard, where what you're you're producing something and you're able to uh, able to charge what you want for the thing that you produce, and you're able to save that over time. Uh, or even increase the value of that thing over time. Uh, I think in that world, uh, it, there's definitely beauty. Uh, and I think you can, you mentioned with uh, <clears throat> the soil being sort of the store of value, which is uh, um, a parallel that I really like. Um, you, can, you can see with your own eyes the difference between uh, a vegetable uh, or grass or whatever that's grown in soil that are, that's rich with uh, nutrients and micronutrients and carbon and water uh, naturally from um, the same things grown in um, fields where the dirt, because there's like a big difference between dirt and soil. And the, the main difference is that dirt does not contain life while soil contains life because of the things that have happened to the soil that turns it into dirt. For example, if you 
pick up use take a shovel and pick up uh, some soil and throw it on the concrete it will turn into dirt pretty quickly because it dries out it loses water and then it releases the carbon uh, and uh, then you have have dead dirt the minerals are still there but they're not available to plants and vegetables because it's dirt not soil and so uh, the same things that you produce from 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 dirt that we use uh, we use it just as like a uh, just like a place to put our uh, chemical or like synthetic uh, nutrients in and we just uh, stick to like the main ones and then we think that okay we got the right ratio between these main nutrients uh, and then we uh, realize that okay uh, there's some uh, second uh, order uh, consequences from this that's not so good but we'll fix that by killing all the insects and then we'll kill all the fungi that try to uh, fix it and all the weeds that try to fix what we're doing uh, and then we come up with new things to kill for every time we we encounter a problem right. uh, we have like these things that you get in the store that's very cheap and uh, very affordable and you can eat it uh, you'll be full you'll survive but uh, your health is diminished uh, your um, your uh, i think your mind is also diminished a lot uh, and the soil is definitely diminished and i think um, yeah that's what it is it's just like diminished diminished food yeah you know, as you're saying that, I, I think about, you know, the people on the left, the hardcore envi environmental people, um, or the anti-capitalist people, let's say, they, they always point to stuff like this and say, look, you know, it's just not sustainable for humans to be on the planet. Look what we do to it. And my thought is always, yeah, but that's entirely because of our approach to it. It's entirely because of our mindset to it. Sure, you could be one of the people that you just described and you could kill everything that isn't the thing that you want to sell or consume or survive, right? And and that's a bad, you know, I think that's we would agree that's a bad approach. It's bad for the planet. The the sustenance so-called that it ends up producing is not very conducive to a healthy body, a healthy mind, you know, emotional stability, all that kind of stuff. But you don't, people don't have to act that way. You don't have to treat yourself and your environment that way. You could do it a different way. And if you did it a different way, uh, I think you'd be surprised at how sustainable human life on planet earth can be. But it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's always seen as like, it's only, it's binary. It's like, humans bad because this is how we act on earth but there's no appreciation like well we we could we could engage it differently we could all act differently we just there has to be a mindset change and of course there, there has to be an, an incentive change in relation to the current system that we have yeah and i think it's, uh, there's uh part of the same thing that you're saying uh, like human bad is uh i think that's just uh if you have that sure that look on life that's just uh, i feel bad for you uh, but it's not only humans it's like fat is bad uh carbon or co2 is uh, is bad uh, mm. so all these things that are extremely good uh, like fat is extremely good for you it's like the most energy dense uh of the nutri nutrients uh carbon is uh, completely necessary for uh, for life at all and it's the best thing you can have in your soil because if you have the carbon in your soil then your uh, plants are able to eat and mm -hmm. uh, communicate and send nutrients to each other so 
Um, it's just a very simple way of looking on things. That's most of the time it's uh, at the complete uh, opposite of uh, the complete opposite. I mean, that's what that's why Clown World is so perfect because it's so often yeah. the exact opposite of whatever Clown World is saying is true or right or good, the exact opposite of the case. But it goes it goes back to that point that you know, fiat is like um, uh, what's what's the saying? You know, the evil is the knowledge that presumes itself complete something like that. And fiat is just, it only has one focus. And as you say, like the people that are concerned with climate change, uh, it's it's all about carbon, right? So that's what we need to control for. Do whatever you need, like throw the resources at, do the carbon taxes, you know, invest in unreliable energy sources, whatever it is to get that metric within some arbitrary range that some fiat academic somewhere said is the right way to do it. You know, and no questions asked anywhere else. That's just what every, all hands on deck. That should be the objective. And that's completely insane. But that is that is the 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 pathologically narrowed focus that the system that we find ourselves within uh, generates. And it, yeah. it's it's horribly destructive. And I've been thinking a lot about this after I learned more about regenerative farming, because um, I haven't done like a huge amount of uh, research into the climate uh, change uh, thing. And I'm like, um, I'm totally receptible to the idea that um, uh, human behavior or uh, the human activities that we have done for the last 100 years uh, has been causing an increased amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's possible. I don't know for sure, but uh, yeah, it sounds, sure. uh, sounds definitely yeah. possible. I think it's also possible that that could lead to higher temperatures uh, globally. Uh, totally possible. I don't know, but yeah, sounds reasonable. Uh, but uh, then it's like all these things that doesn't make sense, like what you're saying, like, okay, we need to uh, capture the carbon. We need to uh, stop having kids, all these uh, terrible things. Uh, but we're still learning in school that uh, in the atmosphere, carbon makes out a very small amount of what's in the atmosphere. Like um, and also a very small amount of the um, of the what do you call greenhouse effect. Mm. Uh, that's what we learn in school, and they say like, uh, yeah, water actually makes up like uh, I think it's like sixty to ninety percent of the greenhouse effect, uh, somewhere between that. But we can't do, really do anything to water. If there's one thing that uh, like let's just call it conventional farming uh, or like yeah, bad farming practices. If there's one thing uh, that does, it's to take carbon out of the soil and water out of the soil. Because uh, you take carbon out of the soil by tilling every year, uh, which uh, causes the carbon that's, uh, that was um, stored in the soil uh, to oxidize because it reacts with uh, oxygen and flies off as uh, CO2. So you lose... Uh, so much uh, CO2 or carbon from the ground in that way. And I'm not hysterical about uh, that carbon being released into the air, but it's a terrible thing for your field because it's great to have the carbon in the soil for it to bind water. And when you don't, when you lose all that carbon from the soil, you also, the soil also loses its capacity to hold water, which I think is um, the reason why we're seeing so much um seeing so much uh, like uh, new deserts rise around the world or, or deserts spreading around uh, like i think even the sahara at one point was was not a desert it was a savanna and definitely the mm. uh, the 
Midwest in the United States uh, was a savanna before and not desert. And this is not due to a global rise in temperatures. This is due to the, the practices and the things uh, we've been doing to the land uh, that's caused the land to not hold carbon, which causes it to not hold water. And um, I think there's there must be, I don't know about this, but like there must be so much water in the air or water that's not in the right place in the hydrological cycle uh, that wasn't there before, that that makes up a, a much larger amount of the effects that we might be seeing than the carbon being released from me driving to work on uh, <laughs> a couple of days a week. So yeah, I, I just agree that it makes zero sense to look at it from that narrow point of view. And I think there's so many um, other uh, perspectives that we could have looked at and so many other ways of, of looking at it from a, from a bigger picture and seeing uh, how different fields are actually connected that we haven't mm. explored at all. And you're not yeah. allowed to explore it because then you're a fucking, uh, <laughs> yeah, something conspiracy theorist, <laughs> climate yeah. denier, or something like that. Yeah. Well, as, as our mutual friend Gigi often says, you know, like you, all these uh, so-called issues that get conjured up by, you know, whomever, it's just curious that the solution is always more communism, you know, more, more capital allocated to the powers that be, you know, the people that give us more money. Let us tax you more. This is how we fix all these problems. It's like, really? Maybe, you know, maybe we could do, maybe, maybe there are other ways to tackle uh, these issues. And again, I mean, one element is properly identifying what the issue might be, because I think you made some allusion to it, but I'll, I'll reiterate, like, obviously in this particular issue, climate has always changed. It's changed for different reasons. It has to do with the sun, has to do with cycles of, you know, there's so many things that that impact that, and I'm I'm open to the, you know, it seems quite likely that humans have affected that to some degree, but we need, you know, how how much? And again, like we've been exploring the difference in you, you consider a farm like a microcosm of the world. Really, you look at a fiat farmer, look at a regenerative, you know, regenerative farmer, let's say, and how they treat those ecosystems. The former. Is incredibly destructive. It's unsustainable, and it's producing all of this extra waste, right? And so, if everyone is doing that, well, that's the type of world you're going to have. In the latter, it's far more harmonious with nature. It's far more regenerative to the environment and the ecosystem that that it's within. It's far less wasteful and destructive. And if you expand that out to everyone in the world, then you get a very different result. And you know, to my mind, I mean, I, I have many issues with this issue but you know you, things like waste and destruction are never focused on it, you know as is always the case with these big government uh what what big government focuses on it's so often something that you can't real really nail down something that's vague enough that it's easy to uh, conjure up a narrative that can't really be proven or disproven right whether it's carbon or whether it's covid or whether it's terrorism like it has to be something really difficult to measure and nail down. If it was simply like, hey, we've identified that we've, we're destroying 20% of the rainforest every year because of illegal logging or whatever it might be, and you know that's bad and we'd like to preserve more, then that's a far more digestible challenge to both identify and find a solution for if, you, if you're into collective you know, solutions. And, that, and most often that they're probably not the right answer, but just suffice it to say like, 
that's a way better way to approach a problem. But, and, and I think we'd both agree that while there's some well-intended people there, and oh, actually, I think most of them are well-intended, intended, but just ignorant. But it because of that ignorance and because of these incentives, it always just bubbles up into problems that are very difficult to nail down and define, and th therefore very difficult to refute, very difficult to address, which siphons more wealth and, and power to a particular constituency or, or class or group of people. And, and, you know, we're bearing witness to the outcome in, in so many different domains of society today. And I think it's very tempting to like, <clears throat> to try to climb up that ladder and try to find sort of, um, find someone to blame uh, right. higher because it's like, I, I don't know, we don't, we don't like to like kick down. It's, it's, it's much easier to like try to see this uh, almost unobtainable uh, person or entity or whatever it is uh, at the top that's doing all these things. And who knows, uh, perhaps that exists or not. Uh, the way I see it, it doesn't really matter. But I agree with you that uh, the intent of most of the people on the ground is, um, is mostly good. Uh, but I think that um there's still like the like all these psychological reasons why um the things we're seeing happening uh keeps happening like you like you said like or like Gigi said like the answer is always more communism and that's <laughs> sort of a funny statement but it's also very true like in in norway where i live uh or come from um the the state now i think the state employs about 30 uh, or forty percent of the workforce in our country, which is insane, yeah. uh, and it spends about sixty-seven uh, percent uh, of the GDP. It's like government spend expenditure to GDP is like sixty-seven. I think it's sixty-seven percent. Wow! Uh, and it's like, how can that come to be? Like, is there a person like planning this? Like, how can you be so insane? insanely good at planning that you plan this stuff but uh, like just imagine yourself working in the public sector in a municipality or something uh, and your work is uh, yeah whatever like uh, like uh, cleaning the trash or making sure that the schools are uh, up to date with their maintenance or whatever it is like whatever you do uh, and whatever position you have you want to find meaning in your job and you want that job to be meaningful to the world around you is you're trying to sort of always attach meaning to what you do and that uh, accounts for us as bitcoiners as well mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then the question is like are you going to ask for a smaller budget next year to fix the tasks that you do because you think well there's other things that's more important or are you going to say no i need more money because i have to fix this and this and this and this is very important and it's actually more important than what the other guys are doing uh, and then you start to hire people and like do you want to do you want to fire people and become less powerful powerful or do you want to just hire more and more people and uh, like become a bigger and bigger boss i think it's like pretty obvious which direction it goes you want more money on your budgets you want more people under you you want to be uh, more important and uh, have like a higher per perceived like meaning of what you do and i think mm -hmm. that's that's so much to do with where we have ended up so oh, far yeah. uh, might be a lot of other factors as well but i think well uh, sure but it's almost like you can't you, you can't blame them because as you say it's kind of like a natural inclination to pursue things in that way they just find themselves within a system that is 
conducive to allowing them to you know that that's kind of the moral hazard of of these systems when so much of an economy so much of capital allocation uh is not responsive or yeah it's not responsive to market forces right so like the government can just spend and and the 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 manner in which uh, in the, you know, market forces would restrain people from making the wrong decision because it's not one that the market is demanding or can support is removed because of their access to capital or the money printer or whatever it might be or debt or what have you. And so you you just you get all this crazy stuff that ends up being built or being pursued or or whatever that would never have existed because you can you can con consider you know market forces just genuine almost like a genuine democracy in the sense that like if something is chosen in the market it means each person who supported it has sanctioned that decision i will pay money for that thing and that's the signal to you to produce it to build it to to pursue it in whatever way and that's you know in, in an economy where 67 or whatever it is percent of the spending is by the central government and 30 or 40 percent of people are employed by it that is so dramatically removed. And so you you just end up having a Frankenstein, which is where we're at in the world today, where the world probably looks, and this is one of the things I'm really interested in, in thinking about is what does the world look like when it's a far more pristine or high fidelity representation of what actually the will of each individual taken as a collective actually is? You know, what what would our cities look like? What would we be pursuing? What would our notion of progress be? if it wasn't so perverted by the uh, unaccountable spending and unaccountable pursuits and unaccountable creations of this Frankenstein fiat monster that's just able to, to build and allocate capital to whatever it wants. And back to the point about um, the environment, you know, again, I think the the thing that should be the greatest sin almost is waste, you know, in nature and in human affairs and in anything. I mean, we should be striving for, the utmost efficiency, regardless of whatever pursuit we're engaged in. And it's never part of the discussion, just the, the sheer waste and capital destruction that results from setting an artificial cost of capital in artificial interest rates, you know, non-market interest rates, or in how, yeah, and, and, and in the, in, in, there's, ne there's never even an attempt to quantify that. Like, oh, like, oops, we, uh, we destroyed $5 trillion in capital because of, you know, whatever we, we, the perversion of the interest rate, or we spent it somewhere where the market wasn't demanding it, it turned out to be not sustainable, whatever. And that is, you know, that's genuine human hours of labor. That's genuine natural resources that have just poof gone into the ether when they could have been far and, and generating waste as a result of doing that, when they could have been uh, devoted to something far more sustainable, something far that people actually wanted and demanded, and therefore would have had the that buy-in for that market and those people to actually sustain it long-term and to cultivate it and to improve it and refine it and in that sort of a way. And um, so if you really care about the earth, I mean, I think waste is it, it should be a far higher priority and then you should be looking at all the different ways that waste actually emerges in the world. But, you know, again, we, we live in a unidimensional world and the, the narrative of that unidimensional analysis is so often set by, well, the wrong people, or at least people that people place far too much, institutions that people place far too much trust in. Yeah. 
And I think uh, when you when you say um, that you wonder how that world would look like, that's uh, like the antithesis to <laughs> perhaps the world that we live in right now. <laughs> I don't know if that's just uh, wishful thinking <laughs> or or a reality, but uh, I think we already have the answer to it in uh, in nature. I think uh, nature that's um, that's uh, unprovoked or like uh, that we haven't really done anything to uh, as it is is perfect and no matter if we do something to it that's that's not good like we man manipulate it in some way it restores back to uh perfection so quickly uh, and that perfection doesn't come from like something that's planned or even um, or even like communication between the different parts to restore it it just comes from each organism uh acting in its own best self-interest that's that's the only thing that happens the, the deer doesn't give a shit about the wolf not eating like it couldn't care less and the rabbit doesn't care about the grass the grass doesn't care about the rabbit uh, the insects doesn't care about uh, the fish and the fish doesn't care about uh, us it only cares about its own self best self-interest uh, and I think that's such uh, like a frowned upon thing to say, just like, uh, yeah, I'm pro-freedom and uh, uh, I don't think uh, CO2 is uh, just bad. Uh, oh, so you want us all to die is what you're saying. <laughs> what? So, oh, you want us all to die is what you're saying. <laughs> that's how your words would be interpreted, right? Yeah, uh, but uh, that's not uh, the right interpretation of it because... It <laughs> you act in your own like the perception of own best self-interest if your perception of that is to trick someone or scam someone or shoot someone or or do something bad then perhaps you haven't thought through far enough uh, what your own uh, best self-interest actually is because mm -hmm. your own self-best interest is to actually uh, have kids and to um, to have them pass on your legacy and you, you you and like that's like the the ultimate goal as i see it of our existence and if you think that uh, those bad outcomes that uh, that's like short-sighted that might be someone's thought of uh, in their own interest at that point of time um that's that's like not uh, the definition of that and i think nature shows that perfectly like you don't see any um any species in nature just uh, completely taking over and eradicating uh, eradicating the ecosystem perhaps with the exception of humans in some cases or at least some specific areas um, it's natural control mechanisms that that make all this go back to the natural state and there's no central control that fixes this there's no coordination it's just all these organisms in themselves just uh, acting like they see fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about some of the things you've learned and, and your experiences here, but just my, my final comment on, I know, first of all, we've been shitting on uh, the modern world, let's say, and also ourselves probably um, being overly simplistic in this analysis, or at least being overly, you know, painting with too broad a brush strokes. But one of the things I've noticed when I've hung out with farmers or, or people in rural areas, or even, you know, live there for periods of time and your typical city dweller is like one, the, the latter, the city dweller is more likely to have very strong opinions about these subjects we've been talking about. But 
their life seems so much more transactional, right? The convenience store, the restaurant, and it's like the 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 relationships seem to have less meaning. And what I'm always struck by when I'm in rural environments or farming environments or what what have you, not only are, are these people, or oftentimes or sometimes, attempting to be stewards of their ecosystem, and usually are far more humble as a result of that, because you come to realize just how dependent you are on the the kind of the harmonious chaos that you just alluded to and that like you're not in full control and the best thing you can do is kind of subordinate yourself to the principles that you're able to perceive and try to exact your will in that way but you, you know imposing your will uh, to the detriment of that system doesn't seem to be the best long-term strategy but the other thing is like people in that environment seem uh you know, far more genuine, far more um, generous, far more uh, compassionate and kind, like the the neighborly sort of situation in a lot of these places where you help your neighbor, you give to your neighbor. And it's, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is this, it just seems far less transactional. And it's just funny that um, you would think, well, it's just funny that the uh, the city dweller who who live who who's much more responsible for a lot of the waste and destruction that we've been referring to, um, and who lives a a life that is far less appreciative of everything that goes into it, uh, is the one that's uh, presuming to know best about what the problem is and and how best to to solve it. But again, you know, maybe that's probably. There's a lot more. Uh, I'm being a little bit unfair to probably all parties there, so maybe it's not a line of of thinking worth going down. But um, what have you in, learned? In broad terms, I totally agree with you, and I feel the same way. Uh, and I think I can say that as a person that's uh, grown up in the countryside uh, but uh, lived in the city. Perhaps I have some bias with me because uh, the countryside is what I'm used to from birth and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I think there's, I think just being uh, i think a very big problem in society today is that we've built uh we've built so much distance between ourselves and nature however you want to sort of define nature but i just i just see nature as, as, as everything that's uh, uh, sort of um yeah just organic and um there by itself before you start to mess too much with it with all these structures um i think you can't be that far away from nature when you live in a rural uh, environment so you're you're forced to sort of um face some of those realities more than a person that lives in the city it's easier to just step away from it and uh put up pull up a chart and say that look uh, co2 has gone up and uh, this has to change and uh, this is the reason for this and uh, electric cars is going to do this and like it's so easy to just uh, pull up a chart, but then if you go out into the real world and you actually have to put your feet uh, in the shit and uh, you see that things are often a little bit more nuanced mm -hmm. and more nuanced than we put it forth here too. But it's, yeah. uh, I think in broad strokes, it's totally, um, totally relevant to put yeah. it that way. Yeah. Um, what What kind of things have you learned about... Well, everything, you know, what based on your early experiences as, a, I guess, an independent farmer, because obviously you, you've probably had a lot of a lot of the things that new farmers will have experience, experienced if they started you know, later in life. You probably experienced them to some degree in your earlier years. But 
you know, what, what, what kind of shift in perspective have you experienced, if any, and what kind of things have you learned about the land, the ecosystem, the environment? You know, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts as someone who's, you know, recently gone down this rabbit hole, uh, more so than most people and more so than you did earlier in life. Uh, I think, you know, the funny thing is, even though I grew up on a farm, um, my, my parents were, um, were, um, having race horses, like, uh, horses that, uh, run on the track. So it wasn't really farming, like food production in that sense. Right. So in a way, uh, in a way that was all new to me in, yeah, 2021 when I bought the farm. Uh, and, uh, basically, yeah, a little bit before that, I started uh, reading, reading books about it, uh, hearing podcasts and started becoming interested in it, but it's basically from that point until now that I've learned, uh, everything that I'm, that I'm, uh, putting into action these days. And I think, um, I pretty early decided or understood that it was uh, cattle that I was most uh, interested in. And then. As you pointed out earlier, I, I bought uh, a herd of cattle, a small herd of uh, 12 animals uh, in um, October last year. Uh, so that was like my, my small start. And now I've uh, gotten uh, or received the five calves the last uh, two weeks, which is uh, a pretty intense, uh, pretty intense thing. Like I work a full-time job besides the farm uh, for now. Uh, and um waking up at night like uh, at uh, two o'clock and then at four o'clock and uh, just uh, going out and checking on the animals and making sure because you know these calves can get stuck in this cows and you can lose both the calf and the cow and like you have to you have to pay attention and mm -hmm. there's uh, i got a calf uh, or several calves actually when it was like minus 10 degrees or minus 12 degrees uh, celsius uh, which is uh, pretty cold and um, at one point one of these calves wandered out uh, went under the fence and uh, laid down in the snow and if you don't remove that calf in the snow pretty soon it's going to die so you have to pay attention and you have to be there and it's a pretty steep learning curve to uh, never have received a calf or seen anyone receive a calf or uh, never really done anything but read about it uh, until you do it yourself but it's also such a fulfilling experience um and I'm definitely going to uh, broaden uh, the specter of what I'm doing into a lot of other things than just uh, like firewood production and cattle that I'm doing now uh, with time. But uh, I think just the just the cattle thing in itself and gracing how much knowledge has been lost on the way there uh, from um, from um, or how much knowledge that we really never picked up from nature and applied into farming. Like even in the 1800s or uh, 1900s, we just put our animals out on the big pasture. Like we had a herd of 20 or 50 or whatever cattle and you just fenced in an area and put them out there. Mm. And then you had another area that you made hay from, at least here in, in Norway, where we have, uh, we have about six months of the year where we can graze the animals out on pasture. And then we have about six and in some cases, seven months where we have to feed them hay. So you have to set off like half your farm or at least one third of your farm to make hay for the winter. Uh, and, and that's sort of how it's been done. And then perhaps you change uh, the location of the pasture with the location of the field that you're collecting hay and so on. But you're just putting all these animals out in one big pasture and then just leaving them. But in nature, uh, that was never how it happened. 
how, how it went by. It's always been like herds of animals or packs of animals uh, that have been chased around by by predators before uh, humans uh, started uh, hunting down a lot of the large prey and um, and uh, yeah, diminishing the populations so much that their, their natural behavior uh, changed. Uh, so these animals have always been moving around to a new spot constantly because uh, the weak animals are left behind. And if uh, you're the one that's left behind, you're more likely to be attacked by a predator. So the, the, the herd constantly keeps moving. And um, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but that's uh, uh, coincidentally very good for the soil because you get disturbance in the soil um, that um, helps capture water and that uh, helps uh, keep the manure there. And you also get a lot of manure on the uh, condensed area, so you get it like spread out uh, evenly since the animals are, are constantly moving. Uh, and then you only take off uh, the tip of the grass uh, instead of taking off the tip of the grass, then some more and then some more and um, emptying the roots of their energy reserves. So you always move around. So you take, take just a tip off. All the energy is already down in the grass. It grows back uh, a lot faster than if you kept your animals there for six months. Uh, and then um, you come back next year and you already left a lot of uh, nitrogen uh, on the ground uh, from the manure and uh, yeah, uh, from the animals. Uh, you stepped down a lot of grass since there were so many animals uh, tightly packed to protect themselves from predators. Uh, and you, um, so you had a lot of carbon in the ground from that. And you have all this remaining grass that, can, that the new grass can grow from. Uh, and then we can um, mimic this in today's nature. I think uh, Alan Savory is the most um, yeah, common or well-known name for exploring this um, way of grazing, like um, of managing grazing uh, back in the day. Uh, and I think he was mostly mostly active in Africa, which is a vastly different climate and um, way of operating a cattle operation from here. Like perhaps you have 40,000 cattle or 10,000 cattle in Norway, you have like 50, or perhaps you're crazy and you have like 200, but it's like, it's not the same size and it's not the same thing. The season is much more intensive and you have to, uh, stockpile hay for, um, half the season. So it's like very different cases, mm -hmm. but biology and how it works with uh, moving the animals uh, to make sure that you have nitrogen and carbon in the ground and you don't tap uh, out the reserves from the roots is exactly the same. So we can do that here. And uh, what I did was um, I, I looked at a lot of different people on YouTube and I also listened to untapped growth. I think that's that's probably the first place I actually heard about this, this grazing, like grazing as a management uh, practice. It was actually from Untapped Growth. And I read a book that he recommended that's called The Man, Cattle and Veld, which was very good and describing this in very, very detailed, uh, very detailed way with both the biology and the history of this and uh, the results of changing your practices. Uh, and uh, what I've done now is uh, I've, I've seen all these practices and like, okay, uh, you're in Africa, you can, you can put up like all these uh, 50 paddocks uh, on a huge area with uh, easy fencing and do that. Okay, that works. 
my setting is very different. I have like roads going through my farm. I have grain fields so that I'm uh, um, a neighbor to, and I have a lot smaller area and I have, have to be much more intensive in the way that I manage manage my farm. So what I did was I, I bought these things called uh, no fence uh, collars, uh, which I don't know if you, if you saw that. I saw them. They look super cool. Like a, a GPS collar that's like this size that uh, hangs from the neck of the cow uh, that um, it's connected to an app on my phone. And then these animals uh, are able to move around on a pasture that I draw on a map. So I draw the borderlines and then I can make all these excluded areas. So you just like, open up your phone and, and draw it on a map and that set, that uh, sets the boundary for the, the GPS units on their, around their neck, right? Yeah, that's right. That is so cool. That's wild. Here it is. Yeah. That's what it looks like. So you can just make uh, make your areas and then you can also see the cows where they are. If they're moving, you get a push notification. If a cow escapes, you get a push notification. If a cow stays still for more than, I think, two hours or something. So it's like it's like this great innovation that makes it so much easier for me in uh, uh, like the, my the moving context. fences around and stuff like that. Yeah, to do the same thing that uh, that um, these guys are doing on a larger scale, but I, I can do it on a very intensive scale with this phone, because I can move the the, the fences twenty times a day <laughs> instead of uh, once a week or or one time a day, because I can just move these fences gradually all the time. Like it That's takes so me five cool. seconds. Is there any ill effect on the animal from being like zapped? You know, to keep them within the bounds. It's just uh, you you have to set off like two days in a fenced, like a real fenced area to uh, practice this thing. Uh, and in the, <laughs> the first couple of times, they, they're quite shocked by having electricity in their neck because they're normally used to like touching the fence somewhere on their side or perhaps with their nose or something. Right. This time it's like around their neck. So they're like uh, pretty, uh, pretty shocked. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? <laughs> And they also, they don't understand the system, of course, at once. Uh, first, it gives off sound. So it's like it starts to beep and then it right. like higher and higher pitch, the closer you get. And then they get sapped. And that happens a few times. Uh, but uh, I think um, yeah, my worst, uh, my, my, my stupidest cow was perhaps uh, sapped like 15 times the first day. And then uh, <laughs> the smartest one understood it after twice. Uh, so it's like... Wow. Big, big difference between the individuals but the, it goes pretty quick and it's nothing worse than the electricity from a fence it's like the same thing right and then they get trained on the sound and the, you don't have to zap them presumably yeah, they, much only, at all they, after that. they only react to the sound like they yeah, don't they yeah. don't get zapped anymore. So. you know th this is i mean i i think what you're obviously implementing this it's my opinion i think a lot of people is you know a lot of people are drawn to uh, farming for the reasons that we've been discussing already. And not that everybody's going to be a farmer, nor has to be, of course, but I think what's really appealing is how can you do farming the right way? So in a regenerative way, that's conducive to building a soil bank and, and not degrading the environment and generating as minimal waste as possible, et cetera, et cetera. But with as much modern technology as possible that it can be made more efficient because again that's that's the name of the game less waste more efficient more time more resources um and if it can be done the right way doing that then you know that that's 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 really the goal and it seems like 
you know, and this is a great example of it, that much as we might criticize, you know, certain elements of the fiat or modern world, obviously there's been lots of amazing innovations and conveniences and things that free up our time. And uh, what I think will probably be a trend and one which I'll definitely be interested in, in following is just how thoughtful people like yourself are deploying technology in service of doing it the right way and what that ends up looking like with, you know, more time to marinate or more time for that to develop. Because, you know, I, I know a lot of people, maybe they don't want to be full-time or large scale, even on a regen sort of basis, uh, farmers. But I know a lot of people that would love to just have some land and have enough cattle and veg and fruit to feed themselves or families and a little bit of surplus for their neighbors, perhaps. And if that could be done in a way that's hyper-efficient, that requires minimal involvement, but you're able to avail of the sovereignty and the nutrition and all the other things that come with doing that, that's a very compelling prospect to a lot of people, or I think it will be, You know, certainly Bitcoiners. Um, yeah. And so it's going to be really interested to see how the confluence of regen agriculture and basically technology uh, develops. Yeah. I think uh, I think everyone wants to be a farmer, but uh, not everyone realizes it yet. Uh, that's my view. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I know that's not realistic at all. Um, but yeah, I think there's uh, there's I think Bitcoiners are predisposed to this idea because of the self-sovereign part of it. Mm. Uh, like um, yeah, I think it's a it's a good question. Like who who are you trusting um, to feed your family for the next five years? Yeah, I think a lot of people couldn't really answer that question because they don't know who they're trusting uh, and they can't really trust the ones they're trusting. So they should perhaps think a little bit more about what bonds they create. And uh, I mean, I've, uh, I'm going to slaughter my first animals uh, this fall, like the fall of 2023. And I've not done any advertising whatsoever because uh, actually i just finished like setting up my my budgets and finding out uh, the pricing and all that kind of stuff today so i haven't i haven't rushed with that at all but there's been an enormous interest from just like norwegian uh, bitcoin plebs uh, just <laughs> random people on uh, twitter some people that i knew some people that i uh, most people that i didn't know at all i didn't even know they were uh, norwegian people and mm -hmm. they're just following me on twitter and they're just like I want to buy your beef and I want to buy it with Bitcoin. And it's, uh, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's what I want to. That's it's so like, good. It just shows that uh, there's, um, I think there, there's just something about uh, Bitcoin and uh, the natural way of farming, which is how I define sort of regenerative agriculture. Of course, it has this regenerating part of it. That's, uh, that's like inherent to it, but it's like farming on the premises of nature in a way that's, uh allows it to uh yield like sustainable uh wealth for us over time that's like the way i look at regenerative agriculture and i think that and the prospect of controlling your own money like controlling your own food uh, on the premises of uh, something you can uh, trust and controlling your own money uh because you don't have to trust anyone uh, goes so much in the same direction uh, and um yeah i'm uh, i think a lot of uh, a lot of bitcoiners were will uh try to find a way into into farming or homesteading or, or mm -hmm. yeah, 
perhaps just owning a share of a farm uh, and uh, sort of having uh, having a little bit of uh, stake in it or, or something like that. Uh, totally. Well, I think, as you say, like part of uh, feeling like you're sovereign or free or independent is being able to identify what you're relying on, like, you know, on what systems, on what things are you reliant on? Because, you you know, your freedom is suspect at best if it's just a bunch of dependencies, basically, you know, and so uh, I, I think a lot of people are becoming aware of that and they're trying to do what they can to uh, eliminate those dependencies, you know, like, do, how do you maintain your power to say no, right? Like if, if the butcher that you always go to has a mask policy in place or a vaccine mandate or some bullshit, what, what, what now, now your nutrition is uh, impaired in some way or whatever, you know? And so figuring out, it, I agree that I think it's very compelling to a lot of Bitcoiners to identify the most important things, perhaps that they're dependent on food, energy, shelter, uh, and figuring out ways that they can reduce those dependencies. And I guess step one, if you're not willing to uh, jump into being a farmer yet, is developing relationships with Bitcoiner farmers that you know you can at least depend more on. There, it's a more reliable dependency, let's say. And it, it's it's fascinating, you know, because for many, many years, I mean, it was always known that for Bitcoin to succeed, this kind of parallel economy has to develop, right? Because the parallel economy turns into the dominant economy at some point, right? It just outcompetes it. Um, and there was all sorts of, you know, different ways that was approached and different companies that offered to pay in Bitcoin. Like, you know, uh, you could like an Amazon sort of clone, you could pay for everything in Bitcoin and not too many of them really took off. And then recently we've had these small, smaller scale circular economies in places like Bitcoin beach and Bitcoin jungle. And isn't it funny that it seems like the thing with the most traction is, um, Bitcoiners wanting, being willing to and wanting to spend their Bitcoin on securing their food supply and primarily in the case of like beef and, and meat. And so you see like the beef initiative in the States and I, you know, I've spoken to people doing, you know, ranching and, and, and establishing these initiatives in Central America and in Australia and Europe and you in, in Norway. And I mean, in hindsight, it makes sense, right? Because what's more important than what sustains you? What's more important than the food you use to nourish you so that you can go out into the world and pursue what's most meaningful. Um, but it's just so interesting that, you know, there's a demand for that, you know, it overcomes the kind of the, the hodl hurdle, right. Where people just want to, you know, keep as many sats as they can, but if you provide them an opportunity to sustain themselves, you know, with what they believe to be the most nourishing food and have it provided by a fellow Bitcoiner, it's like, take my sats, you know, like, let me let me buy as much as possible and it's uh i mean unexpected but amazing uh phenomenon or development to to witness yeah and i i noticed it myself like when when people are uh, are uh um offering services or products in bitcoin i, I want to pay and i want to buy those yeah. stats back of course but yeah i want this uh, bitcoin circular economy to to grow and it's uh i i, I buy with pleasure i'm the uh, same way i love it i think but I think I want. I just want to pick up on one of the things that we were talking about with uh, like, yeah, we're shitting uh, on like today's system or like conventional farming and a little bit the like client world. These things uh, combined as they are. Uh, but I think it's very important to to with regards to um, uh, self sufficiency to actually point out uh, how uh, how 
sort of uh, extremely complex, but also very simple. Uh, the whole um, farming uh, situation of today is. Uh, and it is uh, sort of, there's two ways that you can produce uh, a lot of food. Uh, it's uh, like you need, you need soil or dirt uh, in like uh, earth to start out with. And then you can either use uh, chemical fertilizers like that works and you can even produce food with uh, chemical fertilizers and uh, perhaps you need some pesticides and fungicides and all this kind of stuff that's quite expensive. Perhaps you need some of those, but you can produce food this way uh, in even uh, dirt. So that's possible. Uh, or it's possible to produce food with um, like produce either just animal foods uh, or produce uh, plant-based foods or grain or whatever with manure from animals. And there's very few real alternatives to this. You can also use some cover crops that you can uh, like you can you can skip a season of harvesting and just uh, mow down these cover crops and then they will have fixated nitrogen in the ground and you will get uh, carbon from the plants that's rotting and, uh, and uh, like uh, creating a building soil. Uh, but that's very inefficient. So perhaps you would have to like skip one or two growing seasons and able to have a full growing season, which is not really doable if we're talking about like producing food on the world population scale uh, and i think it's very important to understand that uh, as much as bitcoiners know about the monetary system and sort of uh, how surprised i think a lot of us are that it, this thing is is still surviving or going on because it, it seems like it should have just ended a long time ago or just blown up a long time ago which is it is ha it has blown up but it's been like able to repair the holes in the dam and just keep it keep it going for a little bit longer just kicking the can down the road it's a lot of the same thing with agriculture because if these systems that produce uh, chemical fertilizer and pesticides and uh, uh, weedicides and all this kind of stuff break down or is in some way not able to produce remotely enough to cover the demand then there's no way you can produce food from the dirt that we're producing the majority of our food from today uh, in a in a way that yields anything close to what we're doing today so there's there's some real uh, for me at least some real concern with regards to um with regards to what would happen if the, that side of the input um yeah that side of the inputs the chemical fertilizer instead of animal manure is uh, breaking down or is diminished in some way and i think it's very important to understand that the longer we keep going and keep um not facing this fact and just sort of growing the world population yeah we can feed eight billion people we can feed nine we can feed 10 11 12 but at some point, uh, the unsustainable way of producing food that we're doing today and the very um, fragmented or like, um, not fragmented, it is a very vulnerable way that we're producing food uh, today, where if one things go wrong, a lot of things go wrong. The longer we keep doing that, the worse the consequences of an eventual breakdown or uh, issue will be tremendous. And I appreciate a lot of the technological advances, like uh, the no fence uh, colors, and I think uh, driving a, 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 
a new tractor is is great although i have a tractor from 1971 still uh, <laughs> for some reason for oh, from exactly 1971 <laughs> <laughs> it's not a fiat tractor uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, there's uh, not no technological advance that can that can fix dead soil like mm. that's on, on on a scale where we talk about food production for the world there's uh, there's yeah no lab where you can fix this there's uh, no uh, technological um, uh, shortcut that you can do to, to sort of fix this underlying problem that we have created for ourselves by sort of removing ourselves from uh, natural sustainable level of food production and i think it's possible to produce uh, as much uh, food per acre in a regenerative way but uh, you can't shift that overnight uh, with all the dead dead soil or dirt that we have around the world today you can't uh, produce uh, insane yields next year uh, and you can't teach every farmer in the world that doesn't know anything about regenerative agriculture uh, about regenerative agriculture in one season so it's like i think it's very important that we push this movement uh, forward uh, now and that we sort of start to uh, tie everything back to nature uh, sooner rather than later uh, mm-hmm. before these things start to break down and i think i in my opinion we're already seeing it start to break down and um, with um, uh, even it might have been uh, supply chain disruptions, like they uh, right. famously call it after Corona. Like might have been, but I think we're already starting starting to see it break down. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about dependencies. I mean, whether it's fertilizer from Ukraine or energy from energy inputs from Russia, or just the, the dramatic uh, and rapid change in interest rates, which changes the debt servicing for farmers. I mean, so many things. If, when you have so many dependencies, the rate of their own their, their change or how they can be disrupted can be incredibly obviously disruptive to to you. And I think what you're saying is the the system has become so precarious and has been grinding down or degrading for so long that the the confluence of those two things, you know, puts well puts people who want to eat in the world uh, and the people that produce that food for them in a very uh, well very dangerous position or, you know, a a very precarious or very risky position. And um, yeah, I mean, I I see that too, which is, I think, and I think a lot of Bitcoiners see it, which is why they're so adamant about securing food supply from people like yourself, you know, noticing that these things are very fragile and there could come a time where, you know, uh, there's an even bigger breakdown in them, even if they, you know, whether it's, natural systems collapse of some kind, or as you say, the soil just gives up the ghost and can't spit out anything anymore, or any of the other inputs become disrupted and yields fall dramatically and people's access to food is diminished. And, you know, there's a recognition that that's a very important thing to have secured. And um, again, I just think it's so cool that uh, I know there's a lot of, you know, regenerative agriculture people or ranchers out there that aren't Bitcoiners yet, but uh, that, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of leading the charge on this, recognizing how important it is and shaking the hands of the, the ranchers and building those relationships. It's, it's, it's awesome. Um, you mentioned uh, or several times throughout this discussion, kind of like being more in tune with nature. And I think, you know, 
prior to maybe this type of appreciation, most people's context for that is like some hippie vegan yoga person having like a full moon ceremony at the yoga studio or, or in Costa Rica or something. But in the conversations that I've had with people like yourself, I mean, like when you're just a, a so you're your typical city dweller as you're growing up, like the change in season means you have to wear a jacket or not. Like that's the biggest distinction, you know, or maybe the maybe the meal on your your table is a little bit different. But that's pretty much the extent of it. But when someone like yourself, when you're when those changing seasons, when the the changing patterns or cycles of nature have a direct influence on the health or the survivability of your animals, let's say, well, then obviously you have to be paying far more attention to that. And in paying more attention to it, again, that this is a question, but I suspect, you know, it's one of the things that intrigues me about farming is that you've come to appreciate um, and be kind of stimulated by the process of understanding the way nature moves and the cycles that, that move it and how all the different constituent components of it work together, how that's taking place. And you have to be much more engaged in it. And as we've been saying, like, that's kind of the the rub of a farmer is like finding the best way to pull those things together and align with nature to, to achieve the ends that you're striving for. But what, you know, has that, what's it been like for you to, for lack of a better term, be more connected with, you know, the, the, the cycles of, of nature? I mean, uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't be a farmer if I wasn't a regenerative farmer. It's not like my choice was conventional farmer or regenerative farmer my choice would be like up in the mountains. Uh, I know this is, this is a reference Mountain you have. Man. <laughs> Mountain Man is like a reference you have in a lot of uh, your episodes here. And um, that would be me. I, I would even do, I would either do that. I, I was on my way to do that uh, when, uh, when I was, uh, well, actually the reason why um, I even bought the farm uh, right after I was done uh, studying uh, is because my my both my parents uh, lost their income due to uh, the COVID restrictions in in 2020, and uh, because of that, you know, it only goes so long until you have to sell the farm without uh, without income. As we talked about earlier, you have to have uh, bigger and bigger machines, more and more equipment. Everything is expensive, bigger and bigger loans. Uh, and um, if the music uh, stops, then uh, <laughs> then uh, it's not a lot lot of time left until shit hits the fan. So they mm -hmm. had to sell the farm. And that was sort of my choice of, okay, what do I do now? Uh, do I um, take over the farm uh, a lot earlier than I was uh, envisioning to begin with uh, and change the course of my life totally? Or do I sort of go the way of that I was sort of uh, the way I already was going and getting a normal um good like um white collar job in the city buying an apartment perhaps buying a second apartment renting it out like playing the fiat games uh, or do i <laughs> take like the path in the middle just okay mountain man like uh, I'm, I'm out of this I'm, <laughs> fuck, I'm fuck this shit. <laughs> fuck this shit. yeah and uh, I, i'm very glad that i chose uh chose what i did even though it's uh it's uh, it's so you it's bought the farm to... from your parents and then converted it into cattle rather than raising racehorses. That's right. Uh, and uh, so that was like um, I'm ve I'm very glad I did that, and I'm just like amazed still every day from uh, like the natural processes that I see, uh, and uh, just like in animals, like how they change behavior uh after they have a calf like i have all these cows 
uh, one day I can uh, stand and scratch it on the back and it's like uh, all fun and games and then it has a calf and then it's like once just like turns into this like uh, beast that's like get the fuck away from me <laughs> <laughs> if you touch this animal if you touch my kid I will kill you <laughs> and it's but and then you can react to that in several ways you can react to that like uh fuck you i decide and try to sort of rule the cow or you can react scared and uh and sort of let the cow rule you or you can react in a natural way and like understand that okay perhaps i should just watch this from a distance uh do the minimal of uh, the minimal things i should do just ear tag the calf and just watch it from watch it from afar um and uh, then you see the different like i i made some mistakes then i did uh, some adjustments and thought about it after and and did differently uh, other times and just like seeing the different reactions of the animals and like it's not nature and us it's like we are definitely part of nature and we can uh, sort of try to play our role in a way that uh, keeps the harmony harmony going uh, a lot better than a normal farmer does and i think uh, conventional farming, uh, at least where I live, where uh, it's um, yeah, uh, 90% uh, grain production, where you just uh, till the soil every year uh, and uh, seed a new uh, grain crop uh, every um, spring. Uh, and everyone does the same. Uh, it has nothing to do with nature. And I think uh, the people doing it doesn't uh, even think it has anything to, anything to do with nature anymore. It's just, uh, uh, yeah doing what's uh, expected from you and what's uh, yielding the best uh, subsidies and they're not enthusiastic about it they don't love it it's just they have to keep doing it to pay down the loan retractor and that's just that's a transaction good. back to that yeah. kind of dichotomy or difference between you know uh, everything being a transaction versus something more uh, cooperative or harmonious yeah. something like that but, but these people they they want to be like me or <laughs> yeah that sounds uh, <laughs> I guess, but the, like they want to do fun things they want to be a custodian of their land right. they want the best for their land they want the best for their family they want the best for the future of their town their family their farm everything so when i tell them about no fence and i'm i'm saying like yeah this actually works and uh, i can just do this and then like wow really uh, can you just do this and then uh, they're like hey come and look he has the cows on his phone and uh, <laughs> it's so fun and then i then i talk to even like uh, conventional cattle farmers uh, that uh, only buys uh, steers uh, and feed them uh, from their uh, small until a certain weight sends them to the slaughtery and never sees the animals again uh, gets paid and then that's it a transaction uh, and then i talk to him about uh, oh yeah i just started as a far and he's been doing this for 20 years knows uh, a lot of things that i don't know and then i just uh, tell him yeah i'm going to do this and this and this and uh, this is how uh, this is sort of my philosophy of uh, what i'm going to do and then i'm going to sell the meat myself uh, and this and that and then he's like oh i really want to do that myself because that sounds a lot more fun than what i'm doing, <laughs> what I'm doing sucks. <laughs> so then like these people want to um, want to be in harmony with nature and want to right. farm this way, but it's it's so hard to see that opportunity and see that possibility through all the all the bullshit and all the propaganda and all the advertisement and mm. um, and everything you're being fed. Totally. Are you a lot like legally allowed to sell your own beef uh, in Norway? Yeah. 
uh, as long as you, uh, but we have to register for it uh, and you have to use uh, um, approved slaughtery. That's uh, well, basically the only, only things that you have to uh, abide by. Um, has, has this experience altered to whatever extent you had a quote unquote spirituality prior to this, be it a traditional religion or something different? Has this experience altered that in any way? Uh, what experience like being uh, being a farmer? Yeah, like this this kind of closeness with the the, the patterns or cycles of nature that you know most people uh, well didn't have during you know let's say their formative years or didn't grow up with. Now again, you're a little bit different, but does does that inspire any sort of different opinion about you know the grander whatever is sort of thing? Um, yeah, I suppose, uh, it, uh, it sort of changed everything like before, uh, when I was like uh, studying and living in the city and just like living the normie, normie life. Uh, although I, I bought some Bitcoin, didn't really understand it, uh, started shitcoining a little bit like that. And then, uh, turned full on Bitcoiner somewhere in like 2019 or, or 20. Um, uh, at that point I didn't really have any what do you call it like any real um grasp of what my life was going to look like like uh or uh, that i had any like faith that i need to live up to or mm -hmm. that i felt like i had a bigger that i had a, a piece and like a, a big a bigger thing there was right. like no, um, no feeling of that whatsoever and i think it's very hard to not feel that when you're when you're yeah so close to nature uh Although it's it's a, a very like uh, cliche thing to say, but it's there's no better term for it as I see it. Uh, when you're so close to nature, there's just uh, no way of not seeing that or feeling that or or being that sort of. And I think that's also um, impacted uh, so much of my like personality and um, and uh, personal relationships and family relationships and all that kind of stuff. How so? Um, um, I think it's just made it a lot easier to just, um, to just, uh, be frank and to, to think about the relationships in a, in a lifelong perspective or like even longer than that, just like, a uh, what do you say? Like generational perspective. Lower time preference to borrow a <laughs> yeah. popular That's phrase. Yeah. Um, That's I guess I ask because, you know, whatever it is that your philosophy permits or believes, you know, uh, generated what we're experiencing here, it seems like the work that you're doing, you know, especially in the way you're doing it in, in the more regen sort of approach, you know, it just brings you closer to that. Whatever generates those cycles, like if, if it's God, if it's the universe, if it's just whatever, you're engaging or interfacing with that more than most people. And so I, I that's why I asked the question because, you know, I'm wondering how much that um, awakens or inspires any change in perspective or change in appreciation or enhances the quality of your questions when you think about those, those bigger questions. Yeah. Um, so related note, do mushrooms grow in your cow shit? <laughs> um... <laughs> I've only owned them since October, so um, I don't know yet, but uh, 
uh, on paper, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's supposed to work. Okay, well, that's that's encouraging news. Um, so uh, next uh, next uh, <laughs> next Freedom Forum, you you might have to, <laughs> to take a trip out of the farm or perhaps yeah. a little bit in the summer. <laughs> awesome. Um, what are your you know your friends or or yeah your your friends call former colleagues whatever think about this change? I mean. I guess you're laying two things on them. You're laying the whole hardcore Bitcoiner perspective and and now this sort of change in lifestyle uh, or or friends and family for that matter. But are they mostly supportive and interested or do they think you're off the deep end? I think uh, I'm mostly a private Bitcoiner and public farmer, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm public about uh, Bitcoin and like my family, but not uh, so much in, uh, in the work relations or like uh, with... Uh, uh, yeah, people that I just know, I'm right. not like the big guy in my uh, in my um, social uh, rings, but uh, mm-hmm. um, but um, I think uh, the the farming thing is what most people react to uh, the strongest, and it's they're sort of they think it's like a fun ideological uh, yeah uh, cool little thing to do, but they don't really think about it like a profound change or something that i'm actually considering seriously and i'm there they always ask and i always try to be to be honest about it they ask like so uh, you're just going to do this uh, part-time right you need you need a job for security right like all these questions and i'm like no i'm going to be a full-time farmer within uh, one to two years <laughs> like, okay uh, how are you going to do that uh, are you going to buy a big tractor and start uh, producing grain or like uh, they don't understand how i'm supposed to do it but i'm just like no i'm going to do this and this and this and go do it completely different then they're like hmm that, that never heard about that before it's probably not going to work but like good luck <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah well i guess do you do you try to convince them or do you just like yeah this is what i'm doing and it's fine I, I don't put any effort into convincing anyone. I right. I think uh, the actions uh, speak for themselves, and there's um, I think uh, you can you can say a lot of things, and I think that's also uh, pretty um, uh, pretty central part about uh, the, the Bitcoin ethos is that the action and the actual transaction is a lot more profound than words. You can say mm-hmm. that yeah buy this yeah i'm going to do this uh, yeah i'm uh, going to be this but um until you do it or uh, do something to actually become that thing it's uh not really that's profound 100 percent. very well said proof of work for the win once yeah. again um and i guess uh, convince wasn't the right word there but just rationalize more your position but i think your your response covered I don't that actually- I just, yeah. uh, I just, play, I just play sort of stupid and uh, and uh, idealistic and optimistic and uh, yeah, I think that's funny because then I can see like they're like, oh yeah, it's probably not gonna work, but he he will learn uh, soon enough. He's young and he yeah, he thinks it's possible. And then I can just yeah, sort of uh, <laughs> wait, laugh. wait by the river. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you? A couple more, and I'll let you go. But what what do you think? Um, or how do you envision this in the future? Like you just said, you know, you hope to be a full-time farmer in a couple of years, but you know, where does this journey take you? I, maybe is the best way to frame the question. Um, what I'm hoping for is that it, it takes me to build up uh, a great farm that I can uh, 
show. Uh, I, I don't have to show the world, uh, but uh, I want to at least show someone that it's possible to farm in a way that you can have fun and that you can uh, not destroy or degrade the land, uh, that you can uh, play with nature and let nature um, uh, boom around you while you produce food. And that you can actually produce uh, as much or more food uh, on your farm with these methods than with um, these other methods that I think is obviously worse. Um, and I also hope to be able to pass this on to the next generation at an age uh, where they can do this um, in the same way as me. I don't want to wait until I'm 60 to pass on my farm to my kids, although I'm probably going to regret that the day that I uh, pass it on. Like, uh, there's some pride, and you also you always want to build as as much as possible. You know, want to make it as good as possible, and sort of fulfill your full potential before you leave it on to someone else, perhaps. But I think that's not the right thing to do, and I think uh, that's um, that belongs to the to the fiat era. Um, to wait until your kids are forty or fifty to take over a farm, I think um, they should be able to. Um, try and fail uh, in their teens or 20s and build their own version of how the world should look from that. And mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to impose the things that I've learned and the, the, the methods that I've used to build it on them for them to use that on, but I'm going to step back and let them have the same journey as me and figure out for themselves what they want to do yeah, with, the, with the farm. It's a very wise approach. Um, yeah, very wise. Uh, have I, is there anything on your mind or anything you think would be interesting to share or something I didn't ask you today about what you've been up to in the last, uh, I guess, year and a half that we should touch on before we shut it down? I think we're uh, through most of it for, for me. Yeah. All right. Well, look, man, it's uh, it's been really fun to watch your journey you know as i keep saying i'm i'm hugely interested in this space and we'll probably get involved myself in some capacity somewhere uh someday but um i just you know it seems to me that this is the way that uh the future that we often talk about and envision this is actually how it gets built it doesn't just magically appear one day it gets built by you know first a few people getting in reimagining or rethinking how things can be done you know, using Bitcoin as their personal uh, standard and then allowing that to, you know, expand out from there and then connecting with and cooperating with and doing business with people that are of like mind and doing the same thing. And over the course of however many years it ultimately takes, we end up having a system or an economy and a culture and communities and towns and cities that uh, are more representative of those underlying principles or values that are inspiring that behavior and inspiring those choices. And uh, so I commend you for being uh, one of the first to take the leap and get involved and, you know, pursue what I think is a very important line of work. And it was awesome to, uh, to hang out in, in Oslo. I hope we get the chance to do that again sometime soon. You have to buy tickets for the next uh, Oslo Freedom Forum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think I'll be coming this year and uh, I'm a bit of a homebody. So it might, it might be, we might be somewhere in the middle. We'll have to wait and see how, how travel plans uh, shake out, but I'm sure we'll make it happen at some point. Are you, are you, do you, do you travel at all? Do you go to conferences or anything like that? 
Oh, I've skipped uh, every conference. The, the the Oslo Freedom Forum was actually the first for me. Uh, and there's a lot of conferences that I'm not at all interested in going to. I wish I could be in Australia right now uh, this weekend uh, for the Australian Beef Initiative. And uh, I would have uh, definitely went to the one in Texas as well. But uh, um, yeah, it's hard. You can't really just uh, leave a farm in a... It's like uh, a startup. Uh, right. And uh, it needs uh, nurturing. And you can't really just... Uh, Pay someone to do it for you when you're when you're starting up so yeah. you have to make some choices but i'm going to be more active in the conference uh, space uh, soon try yeah. to travel around more it's uh, it gives a lot of uh, joy and uh, perspective and uh, meaning yeah i mean it'd be great to see you there at or somewhere and it does definitely give you a boost kind of recharge the batteries remind you of like what you're you're part of your motivation at least but as you said i mean uh, priorities are priorities and and getting the primary work done or managing things at home is definitely the number one priority. So I understand that completely, but in any case, man, it'll be somewhere at some point and uh, I look forward to it. And, and thank you for the time today. It's been great. Same. Thanks to you. All right, brother. Take care. Yeah.